Who is the greatest leader you can think of and why? When I was in high school, I had a coach who one game decided not to coach. He just sat at the end of the bench and didn't say anything the entire game. As you can imagine, the assistant coaches and us as the players were quite confused with this leadership style. All of us can say we've experienced various forms of leadership, some good, some not so good, from people in our lives like parents, teachers, coaches. What are qualities in the people that make them a great or a poor leader? Or if you're in a leadership position, what do you aspire to as a leader? When I looked online for qualities that make a great leader, it said integrity, communication, able to delegate, empathy, and the two greatest leaders at least listed that first came up were Alexander the Great and George Washington. Today we're going to look at what Scripture says about leaders and the qualities that should be defining their lives from Titus chapter 1. Uh, So you can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Titus is near the end of the New Testament. It's after 2 Timothy, and it's before Philemon and Hebrews. It'll serve you to follow along with me as uh, as we look at it together. As you're turning there, just a little background uh, information about this letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it to Titus. Sometime between in the 62 and 64 AD. Most of us probably know that Paul was a Jewish religious leader who persecuted and killed Christians, but was saved dramatically through Christ and was told to go make his gospel known to the nations. Titus was not an apostle, but a co-worker and partner in the gospel with Paul. Paul views Titus as a spiritual son. We see this from verse 4. Uh, in the first chapter. He possibly had a hand in leading Titus to faith in Christ, but we don't know that for sure. Whatever the case, Titus and Paul were close relationally and worked together for the spread of the gospel in some tough locations. In this letter, we find Titus in Crete, which is an island off the coast of Greece. Crete was heavily influenced by Greek mythology. The majority of Cretans would have been non-Jews, But it is mentioned near the end of chapter 1 that those of the circumcision party were also around teaching. And we see this group in many of Paul's letters. They would be possibly ethnic Jews teaching that people would need to be circumcised and follow the law in order to truly be Christians. In all of Paul's letters, he rebukes this teaching. Um, So the majority of Cretans believe that that the gods were originally men and women who became gods and that they were actually born on the island of Crete. The churches in Crete would be tempted to mix beliefs of the one true God with the beliefs of the Greek myths and uh, with Zeus. Zeus was one of their main gods, and he was uh, known as someone who would trick, seduce, and lie to women. And in the culture of Crete, this was viewed as uh, commendable and, and a virtue. So the Cretans were generally known for being selfish, liars, violent, and promiscuous. So not, a great, uh, um, not great things to be known for. As we will see in this letter, to be Cretan is synonymous with being a liar. So how can these little churches spread throughout Crete survive in such an environment? How can the believers in Jesus be in the culture, but not of the culture? How can they hold fast to the truth of God when everyone else around them is not? 
That's what we're going to think today as we look at Titus chapter 1, and we're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, as, as Benny stated in the beginning, the overall theme of this letter is knowing and believing right doctrine or teaching should lead to living a righteous life. So knowing and believing right doctrine or teaching should lead to living a righteous life. I just have three points for us this morning, and then we'll have some application at, our, at the end. So our first point is from the first four verses, and that is the truth of God and his word. The truth of God and his word. So read with me uh, Titus 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul begins his letter with saying he is a servant of God. This is pretty common in most of his letters to begin this way, but in most letters he says he is a servant of Christ. This is the only letter where he states he is a servant of God. Servant of God was used in the Old Testament to describe men like Moses, David, and other prophets. Paul seems to emphasize his authority from God as an apostle in this letter. His words in this letter ultimately come from God, but this is something that the whole Bible says about itself. We see this uh, from 2 Timothy verse three, or chapter 3, that all of God's uh, words, all of the words in the Scripture are inspired by God. What is the reason Paul is writing? We see in the first verse there, it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, who are God's elect? These are the believers in Crete. God chose the people in Crete. He chose to save them before the foundation of the world. This is a fact and theme that runs throughout the scriptures. God elects individuals and forms them into a people for himself. If anyone is to put their trust in Jesus, it is because of God's election. What is God's election based on? It's not based on anything that we could offer or do. God doesn't look forward throughout history and choose people because they're good or something that they're going to do in the future. God's election is based on his love and his sovereign choice. We've seen that as as Pastor Josh has been going through Genesis and as God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. This is shocking, right? Because we see there's nothing in Jacob that would make uh, him worthy of God choosing him. But God chooses Jacob. If you have questions on this teaching, I'd encourage you to read the rest of this letter even today. And a great place to go would also be uh, Romans chapter 9. What is the purpose of God electing his people? Ultimately, God's election gives him all the praise and the glory. And we see that in, uh, really, in Ephesians 1. But he also saves people so that they can grow in godliness, which we see from this letter. God elects. He uses people to bring the message of Jesus to his elect. Those that believe gain a knowledge of the truth that produces spiritual growth or growth in godliness. 
What can we observe about what the Christian life looks like here? True knowledge of God produces growth in the life of believers. This is something that should be continuous throughout the Christian's life. We never want to separate knowledge from growth and godliness. So theology, right? Theology means the study of God. So true knowledge of God should lead to a changed life or growth and godliness. Some think I don't need to study or learn about God. I will just try to live a good life, loving God and others. But God's design for us is to learn about him through his word. And this produces growth and reflecting his character. Maybe we can point to people who are really smart or know lots of facts about God, but they are very prideful and arrogant. I would say these people are not gaining true knowledge of God because gaining true knowledge will produce godliness. So if you're a believer here today, I would urge you to study God's word and seek to grow in understanding the truth about God and pray that this knowledge that you gain can produce a life that is increasingly reflecting Christ. So what are some basic truths that we learn about God in these first couple verses? First, as we've said, God elects. In verse 2, we see God never lies. And he promised the hope of eternal life to his elect before the ages began. In the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. But the hope of a Christian is certain because God promised it. And he always keeps his word. The true God is the one who never lies, which we see is contrasted with Zeus, who would lie and seduce. The true God never lies. Verse 3 states, Paul has been commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to proclaim these truths. He proclaimed them to the Cretans, and he is reminding Titus to continue to teach these truths. These truths have been manifested or appeared in God's word, and Paul is showing from the scripture the truths about God and eternal life. These are amazing, rock-solid truths about God and his word. This is the fundamental hope that the Christian rejoices in when he or she becomes a Christian. They have been saved from God's wrath and eternal punishment in hell that every one of us deserves, and they have assurance of eternal life. If you are here today and maybe you've grown up going to church your whole life and you think your church attendance or the way that you live your life will get you to heaven, God's word says this is your mistake. The way anyone gets to heaven is through God's electing love and mercy that he gives through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus died and resurrected, not so that we could try to earn our way to heaven by being good or religious, but so that we could put our trust in him. So if you're trusting in your life or your qualifications in order to get you to heaven, I would urge you to repent of this wickedness and turn to Christ as the only one who can save you. I would be delighted to talk with you after the service if you feel like the Holy Spirit is working in your heart today. You can, you can come uh, and be reconciled to Christ right now. Um, and I would, I would urge you to do that. Be reconciled to God today through Christ. This is the most important decision you could ever uh, come to a conclusion on. So this brings us to point number two, leader qualifications. In verses 5 to 9, leader qualifications. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer's God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So what's Paul's tone in this letter? He seems to get right to the point and tells Titus what he needs to be doing. There's kind of an urgent feeling here. In verse 5, Titus needs to establish elders in the various towns throughout Crete. We can reason that there were multiple churches and that their churches were pretty young since they didn't have any leaders. Some people might wonder, what exactly are elders? Elders are pastors, shepherds, or overseers, those that lead in the church. These terms are pretty much used interchangeably uh, throughout the New Testament. Paul's normal pattern in Acts, as churches would be established, was to have elders lead these various churches. So in this situation, Paul must have gone to Crete, preached the gospel, people believed, and churches were formed. Now Paul sees there needs to be leaders in these churches. Now, how is Titus to choose who would be elders? First, he deals with the character of the elder, or of the, of the man. He says in verse 6, they must be above reproach. This means that the elder's life is to be worthy of being imitated. There should not be known scandals or incidents in the man's life. He's seeking to follow Christ faithfully, publicly and privately. One of my wife's old friends growing up was telling her recently uh, about a church that her and her family started going to. And uh, my wife, Brooke, was asking her more information about it. And she, she Googled the pastor's name. And the first thing that popped up was a fraud scandal connected with the pastor in this church. This should be a red flag to everyone that, you know, this man might not be above reproach. Uh, and I would urge everyone here not to join a church where the pastor is known for being involved in a scandal like this. Another basic qualification for being an elder is that he must be a man. This might sound very unpopular in our culture and even in many churches, but we see God's design from the beginning of creation is for the man to lead his family spiritually and also in the church. So not all men should be elders, but the position of eldership is only for men. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into the details of uh, this argument, but if you have questions on that, feel free to talk with me after the service. Josh also uh, preached in more detail on this subject from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you can find that on the church website. Another tough issue that we come to is from verse 6. If you're reading the uh, English Standard Version, it says that the elders' children must be believers. Some take it to mean this at face value, but I think it, it cannot mean that in order to be an elder, the children must be Christians. We see from this letter that the, test, the rest of Scripture, that the gift of conversion is something only God can do in the life of an individual. So those of us who are parents here, cannot, we cannot cause our children to believe in Christ. Parents, we should be teaching our kids and 
the truth faithfully and praying that they would believe. Those of us who are members of this church, we have promised that we will seek to do this as believers. This is from our church covenant. We promise to bring up our children in the training and instruction of the Lord by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. So if you're a member here and you're struggling to bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord, it's hard. There can be days it seems pointless. As a family, we try to read and pray uh, regularly together during one of our meals, and oftentimes it can feel like it's not effective. As I'm reading, the kids will interrupt and ask some important question about dragons. Or the other day, one of them said, look, Dad, I can pull my, my lip up to my nose. Um, really deep conversations around God's word. But despite this, despite the distractions and the hardships, um, reading with our kids, reading and praying with our kids regularly is us walking by faith and not by sight. If you are struggling in this way, I'd encourage you to talk with other parents of this church and get advice and get prayer on this. Uh, Don't seek to just do this alone. This is why God has given us the church. Just a word to to us as fathers as well. Uh, I would just say, are are we leading our family spiritually? Are we taking initiative in praying together and reading the Bible with our family? How do we treat our wife and our kids day in and day out? What is our speech like? Are we seeking to build up our our wives and our kids in the Lord or tear down? Overall, I would say this verse, a better translation would be, children are to be faithful or generally behaving in an appropriate way under the authority of parents. The elder should be demonstrating that he is leading and guiding those who are under his care and under the authority in his home. From verse 7, An elder is to be God's steward. Just as God gave man stewardship over the garden, but God is the ultimate authority, so it is with elders in the church. An elder should be continually seeking to conform himself to God's word, and he should not be domineering in his authority. The rest of verse 7, we kind of have the negative qualities that should be rejected here. Arrogance, drunkenness, violence, anger, greed is something that all Christians can struggle with but should be seeking to flee from. It should be especially evident in elders that they are growing and and seeking to put these attitudes and behaviors to death. I would say this means that an elder is not perfect in all these categories, but there should be evident growth and other believers should seek to imitate their lives. The positive side we see in verse 8 seems almost the opposite of the sins in verse 7. An elder should be seeking to be hospitable, Loving good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Again, these qualities should be evident in the life of an elder. The church should see these qualities and affirm that he is ready to be leading in the church. These qualities are not something only elders should be seeking to grow in, but every Christian. A great way to apply this sermon uh, for anyone here would be to meet this week with another uh, person from this church and ask them what are ways that you can grow in any of these things from this list or if you need to confess sins um, from this list. If you don't know uh, anyone from this church or if you're a member and you don't, don't know where to start, 
I would say, seek this out. Come talk with me after the service and see if I can point you um, to someone that you could start meeting with regularly. In verses 7 and 8, deal, in verses 7 and 8, deal with what the elder is like in his character. And verse 9 deals with what he is able to do, and that is to be able to teach. This would be one of his main responsibilities in the church. He is not called just to teach, but to teach sound doctrine or true teaching from God's word. He should not seek to twist the scriptures, but seek to teach them rightly. How do you teach God's word rightly? Just a few subpoints here. Number one, read God's word chapter by chapter and book by book. Don't just pick a random verse here and there. Uh, this, is, this is why we go through whole books in the Bible as a church, going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, we're seeking to understand God's word in context. Number two, pray. Ask God to give you understanding and insight into his word. We need the Holy Spirit to be guiding us as we prepare to teach. And number three, affirm clear teachings of Scripture and do your best to understand the less clear teachings, right? So there's, there's hard things to understand in the Scripture, but don't come up with a major teaching or doctrine based on a controversial or obscure verse. Understand them in light of, of the clear teachings in Scripture. So elders not only need to affirm and teach the truth, but they need to call out and reject false teaching, which brings us to our last point, false teachers. So this is verse 10 all the way through chapter 2, verse 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but the defiled and unbelieving Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So there's a group of people known as the circumcision party that are teaching this message that we mentioned in the introduction that go against what Paul and Titus have taught them. This teaching, their teaching in their lives stand in contrast to what the elders should be teaching and the fruit in their lives. What is one way that we can tell that their message is false? Their lives do not show that the true God is in them. Verse 10 says they are insubordinate, rebellious, gossips, full of deceit. Their lives seem pretty much to match the culture around them. Another way we can tell their message is false is their motivation for teaching is for shameful gain. What is this? Uh, Most likely, it's, it's probably seeking to gain wealth through their teaching. This is opposite of Paul and Titus and the apostles' motivation for their teaching. Their goal was to gain money. Their goal was not to gain money, but to seek to make disciples of Christ. They were seeking not to gain for the for themselves, but to give of themselves 
for others the way that Jesus modeled for them. In verse 12, Paul makes a um, really serious statement where he quotes this Cretan poet um, and says that they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This might seem very severe, but notice how wise Paul is. He doesn't just uh, outrightly say this, but he's quoting uh, a a Cretan. Um, So Paul affirms that this saying is generally true, generally true. I don't think he's saying that every single Cretan is this way, but generally speaking, uh, this is true. And he says these false teachers need to be rebuked. They are teaching and promoting this kind of lifestyle that is opposed to true Christianity. In verse 14, we're not told exactly what kind of Jewish myths they were teaching, but we know it was leading them away from the truth. Verses 15 through 16 uh, is another tough uh, couple of verses. It may have something to do with Jewish false teachers calling the Cretan Christians to follow the Old Testament law in regard to clean and unclean foods. So Paul is saying that for the pure or Christians, it's okay to eat anything in light of the new covenant. So the Jewish nation before the coming of Jesus were under the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And ever since the death and resurrection of Jesus, all believers are under the new covenant. So if you remember, Jesus uh, initiated the new covenant at the Last Supper with his disciples. So uh, this partially means that uh, Christians are not called to follow the ceremonial laws of the Jewish nation, such as the, the food laws. So some in the circumcision party are calling them to keep these Old Testament laws for salvation And Paul's saying they are the ones that are actually defiled. This corresponds with Jesus' teaching uh, that we see in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, uh, Peter's vision in Acts. These false teachers prove they actually don't know God by their teaching and their lives. They're denying God by their works. Titus and those he is calling to lead the churches are called to teach the truth and to live it out. Since the birth of the church, there's been false teaching. Most of the New Testament letters are combating various forms of false teaching. So I want to think about today, what are modern examples of false teaching that we should be aware of? There's all kinds of false teaching or or ditches that we could fall into. One false teaching that that relates to the circumcision party would be uh, Roman Catholicism today. They would affirm salvation by the death and the resurrection of Jesus but that we also need to earn our way to heaven. This is a false gospel. There are many other churches that are not Catholic that would also emphasize a works-based salvation. And we should be aware that if a person is teaching that we must do anything uh, in order to go to heaven, it is a false gospel. The only way to get to heaven is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Another ditch to fall into would be an easy believism or a hyper grace teaching. Easy believism or hyper grace teaching. Examples of this would be there is no need in the Christian life to fight against sin. There's no change really in the believer's life. If someone says they are Christian, they are one. You can't question it. There's no need to look at someone's life and see if there's fruit of repentance. Repentance is absent in the life of the Christian. This would uh, correspond with the false teachers who 
are professing to know God, but their, their lives are denying God. So just something to think about, even, even for, for us here. Do you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but your public or private life is denying God? Do you have secret sins that you are hiding or refusing to repent of? If you're, if you're trusting in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. So, so we have the freedom to live our life, to live lives of continual repentance before God and bring our sins to the light. This is part of what, what we talked about in the foundations class today. We can bring our sins to the light. We, we will conti- all Christians will continue to have sin in their lives until we see Christ. And part of, part of growing in Christ is continuing to repent of these sins. This is, this is hard, but there's also great joy in bringing our sin to the light and knowing this is forgiven through Christ. In, in this hyper-grace teaching, there's no concept of continual repentance. Examples of preachers who proclaim this message would be Joseph Prince. Prince claims that the Spirit never convicts us of our sin, but only of our righteousness in Christ. This kind of teaching is twisting the Scripture and leading many astray. The last kind of false teaching I will mention is the prosperity gospel. Those who are seeking to gain material wealth through their preaching. This teaching states that Jesus died to make the Christian rich, healthy, and prosperous. There are many forms of this type of teaching, and it's worldwide. Examples of these teachers would be Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Pastor Chris, and tons more. They would be de-emphasizing the true gospel, that the greatest miracle is that we can gain forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and instead focus on material wealth and the things of this world. They are seeking to gain wealth by making false promises to their listeners, and I would encourage you all to test who you're listening to with God's word and reject false teachers. So in closing, I want to think of some final application for us as a church. What should we as a church do in light of this text? Number one, pray for your elders and hold them accountable. We want to have godly men leading this church. We want to follow Paul's and commands to Titus to have elders that meet these qualifications that we've looked at this morning and are seeking to faithfully teach the body. We are an elder-led and congregationally ruled church Every member here has a responsibility to hold your leaders accountable and to pray for us. If any elder's life or teaching drifts from the true gospel, you should lovingly confront us. Number two, not all are called to be elders, but some of us should think about aspiring to lead and shepherd. Every one of us, man or woman here in this church, should be seeking to grow in the character qualities that we saw from Uh, these verses. But are there men here who aspire to lead God's people? Are you seeking to grow and prepare yourself to be called to this office of being an elder? Your motivation should not be to get the title, but to be faithful to what God has called you to do. The church should be recognizing men who are growing in this way. It is a good thing to aspire to be an elder. We see this from 1 Timothy 3. So I'd encourage you to think and pray about whether Uh, whatever stage of the Christian life you're in. If you're a young college student, a middle-aged man, or or an older uh, believer, think about if God is is calling you to this this task. 
and uh, seek input from other people even in the church if, if God is leading you in that direction. Number three, be accountable to other members in this church and seek help. And I want to think particularly here of young singles, high school and college students. How are you living your life? Do you have sins that are tolerated in your life or viewed as acceptable sins? Are lifestyles that are accepted as normal in the lives of students but are actually sinful? Are you known for not keeping your word or not being dependable or for participating if everyone in the class is cheating that you just go along with the crowd? Are you known for gluttony, laziness? What do you, what do you turn to when you're stressed? Is it food, alcohol, video games, laziness, or anything else? Does your life resemble the Cretans or true Christians? I want to challenge you to put these acceptable sins to death. If you are professing faith in Christ as a student, how does your life look different from the non-believing students? Seek help from other members in this church. Open up with someone this week about your struggles and fight to live a life that is reflecting Christ instead of the culture. In closing, whatever stage you are in the Christian life, we all need to grow in godliness. God designed us as Christians to do this together in the context of a local church. Don't neglect God's means of grace to the church. God has given us one another so we can keep persevering in the faith. So let's strive to be open and honest about our sins and struggles with one another. As Christians, we don't have to hide our sins, but we can bring them to the light because Jesus has paid it all.